0: thank you for tuning in to the Michigan Manufacturing Technology Center's first official podcast. We are starting this podcast series with an insightful discussion about additive manufacturing. What is it? How is it impacting our industry? And the unique ways it is being used by manufacturers in various sectors. I'm your host, Ingrid Tai, president of the Michigan Manufacturing Technology Center. And I'm joined today by three distinguished guests and industry 4.0 experts. First, let's welcome Tom Kelly. Tom is an MMTC board member and globally recognized expert on Industry 4.0 and its impact on business. As Executive Director and CEO of Automation Alley, Tom's initiatives have helped countless businesses jumpstart or accelerate a digital path to strategic success, including Integrate, the global Industry 4.0 conference, the 3D printing network Project Diamond, and the formation of the World Economic Forum's U.S. Center for Advanced Manufacturing. He is the co chair of the WEF's Global Network of Advanced Manufacturing Hubs and is a member of the Additive Manufacturing Coalition Steering Committee. In addition, he serves with the Fraunhofer Technology Advisory Board and Global Future Council on Advanced Manufacturing and Value Chains. Welcome, Tom. Hey, thanks for having me, Ingrid. Our second guest we have is Pavan Mazumdar. He is also with Project Diamond and Automation Alley. And Pavan is an experienced executive leader engineer, and industry 4.0 expert who is currently serving as the chief operating officer of Automation Alley. He's led the creation of management of Project Diamond, Automation Alley's 3D printing network, and many of their other industry 4.0 initiatives. Hovind is also the founder of PCS Insight LLC, a company that teaches leaders of growing companies how to increase their profits by intensifying happiness and reducing friction in the workplace resulting in greater productivity and long-term success. Pavan is also the author of the book, Venture Perfect, The Leadership System to Maximize Teamwork and Profit in Your Business. Pavan, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Ingrid. And last, we also have Matt Klein with us. Matt is the Independent Testing Lab Manager and Quality Manager at MMTC's Northeast Office at Saginaw Valley State University. He promotes the Industry 4.0 technology among Michigan manufacturers and has extensive experience in engineering, quality, management, and product development and launch with small business and mid-sized manufacturers. Matt also served as a mechanic in the U.S. Army and deployed twice in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom. In addition to holding a mechanical engineering degree from Saginaw Valley State University, Matt is certified as an exemplar global quality system lead auditor and is a Six Sigma black belt. Matt, good to have you. Hello. So, gentlemen, first and foremost, it is an honor to be here with you today, and I am excited to dive into our conversation, and we're going to talk about additive manufacturing with you folks. So I want to get started, and I want to hear first a little about how did you all begin your journeys into Industry 4.0? Can you talk about when in your career did Industry 4.0 come onto your radar? And then what led you to your current roles as Industry 4.0 experts and advocates? So, Tom, can we start with you?
1: Sure. Well, you know, Ingrid, um, I've been in Industry 4.0 since way before it was ever coined that term. I mean, I came out of school in the mid-80s as an electrical engineer. They didn't have computer engineering. It was all lumped into electrical engineering. You came out knowing how to do computer engineering and electrical, and I learned how to— basically do factory automation. It was my first job right out of school. So I've been working with robots and computers and PLCs and automation and all of the things that go into Industry 4.0 for the better part of my entire career. And that led me to this role at Automation Alley. So uh, so my background has been uh, uh, just chock-a-block full of of Industry 4.0. <laughs>
0: <Right>. With chock block <laughs> is a technical term you use? <laughs> yeah, you know, I've been on that term
1: lately. I think it's a fun term,
2: so I use it.
0: <laughs> and Pavan, what about you? What, what, is, what led you to Industry 4.0? So
2: I trained as an engineer. My undergrad was in electronics engineering. When I uh, went to grad school, it was more in semiconductors and what we used to call very large-scale uh, uh, integrated circuits. And then... Um, the twist of fate moved me to computer science. So I started in the technology field. And back then we were already starting to see the emergence of today what we call industry 4.0. Back then it was heavy computerization, automation and technology driving productivity, which if you arc it to where it is today with artificial intelligence, that's sort of where it's, it's, it's coming to, which is AI is really pushing productivity. And so I started my career in large organizations and then I had the opportunity to work for a small family owned business uh, that also had a uh, software company as one of its portfolio companies and we were producing ERP software and we started seeing you know this thing that we we call today as IT and OT integration one of those pieces that we that we often talk about in industry 4.0 and I started seeing those, but within the warehouse context, not necessarily manufacturing. And so it was those early patterns that that I kept observing. And then once um, I got involved with Automation Alley, which was almost, it's 10 years ago now, it's going to be 10 years ago in April, that uh, I started my journey with Automation Alley. And, and Tom and I started talking about formalizing this term, Industry 4.0. It sort of brought it all in, and gave it, Almost like a, a thematic umbrella, and so it's it's really interesting how that how that has arced.
0: Matt, what about you?
3: So on
2: the additive end, I saw a Lam
0: layered
3: object manufacturing the old glue paper together a little over twenty years ago when I first went to engineering school before I was in the military. The military had got on the additive manufacturing by the time I left and went back to and finished my engineering degree about ten years ago. And there I got introduced to kind of all varieties at a, at a surface scratch level, I picked it up personally in like 2015 or so, I bought my own 3d printer and got on the FFF train. And I've been looking through all of that, all the 3d printing technologies ever since, and I'm a mechanical engineer. So thinking about strange ways and strange shapes that I can make to do that I, I was geeked the first time I heard about conformal cooling back before I had an engineering degree. I worked in an injection molding shop, and I was like, Oh wow, yeah, that you know, knowing the challenges of injection molding, if we could build cooling into the mold that much better, you know, so just kind of all of these things, as far as from 3D printing on the industry 4.0 end, I've learned about it much more since I started working with MMTC and uh running the lab here and understanding like what can be done with these industry 4.0 technologies to. Bring value to the business. My background industry-wise was quality and seeing that, oh my gosh, if I could have a machine that tells me every time it rejects, I don't have to have an operator writing that down. Then I'm I don't have that friction between me and the operations department. The you know, quality, I want all my data all the time so I can make better decisions. The operation guy, he wants to meet his production goals. So I just see it as this great lubricant for industry to keep them from, you know, being forced to have that kind of friction between operations and quality to give people the information they need when they need it.
0: That's great. And and for our listeners there, many may be familiar already, but for those of you who are not as familiar with Industry 4.0, it is really touching on the innovation and acceptance of a lot of new technologies. So some examples of it are robots and cobots. So integrating those into our manufacturing processes It's also the implementation of software such as uh, ERP systems, where you can collect data, such as Matt, you just insinuated, and aggregate that data and analyze the business trends that are bubbling up to make better decisions. Pavan, you just hit on AI. That is a huge topic right now. But one of the other elements is additive manufacturing, it's 3D printing. And I really want to focus on that today during our conversation. So I know that over at MMTC, we're seeing a lot of companies employ a variety of technologies to improve their manufacturing processes. And it seems like additive is really a very popular entry point for a lot of our clients. What is it that you folks think is is it about the additive that makes it so useful to a wide wide range of our industries? Provin, do you want to hit on that first?
2: You just hit on it before when you talked about Industry 4.0. We see very simply, Industry 4.0 is the physical and the digital coming together, right? That's basically how industry 4.0 was coined. And you know, it's this notion of a cyber physical system. We also see that a cyber physical system requires software and it requires hardware. And we always talk about the software-driven manufacturing method, right? That's basically what we talk about. Why additive becomes so interesting is because additive is probably the cleanest way software drives manufacturing. Because what additive basically is saying is, here's your build file. Here's the formula, if you will, for layering this material using this very specialized geometry. And we give it to a highly specialized machine that figures it out and understands exactly what to do. And so it sort of short circuits some of the traditional manufacturing processes that, you know, if a traditional manufacturer were asked, what are you going to do? They have to go through this process of design, then from design to engineering, from engineering to sort of manufacturability. And additive manufacturing just compresses that completely. And so it is one of those things that is, in some ways, mind blowing because it destroys some really hardened ideas. But in some ways very liberating and so for us that is one of those technologies that so different but it has such power it has you know geometry for example you know the complexity of physical geometry it's free because if you can conceive it in cad and if you can reasonably produce it with layering technology you have extremely complex geometries traditional manufacturing finds it very difficult to do that so for us, that's one of the reasons why additive is the fastest way that someone is intimidated by, doesn't understand Industry 4.0. It's a small step, but it's an extremely powerful step. And that's why we, we think additive is, has so much potential. And I'll, I'd love to hear what Matt and Tom have to say about it, too.
1: Well, I, I would add, Pavin. that's also why, as we are going down this path, of additive with what we're doing at automation alley and things like project diamond we meet a lot of resistance because in when you move from manufacturing traditionally as we know it it's defined by your understanding of the machines and processes that all get stitched together to make the finished good and manufacturing in additive is it's all in the design and typically small manufacturers traditional manufacturers they're not designers they're manufacturers and we're asking them to become designers because all of the knowledge to make it is captured within the computer and the and the additive machine itself and so you don't need to know how all the processes stitch together to get throughput in fact mmtc you know what you guys made your name around was leaning what is leaning it's Understanding how all the processes fit together, and then making sure it's the most efficient process you can possibly have, in additive, hundred percent of that goes away. I push a button, and it's getting, and it gets made. So you have to tip the mindset of manufacturing completely on its head and say, "You guys are actually designers. You're not manufacturers in the
3: traditional sense." I mean, I would agree with Tom so much. as there's so much artistry in design that has to happen, and there's so much. That's why you show them 3D printing, they go, oh, cool. I can show them all these toys and trinkets. The gazelle behind me was printed uh, probably 15 years ago. But it's art. That's a 3D scan of an actual statue. And and you show them that, okay, well, great. It's a piece of art. What can I do with that in my manufacturing process? And I won't say it's a lack of imagination. Uh, You know, it's a lack of understanding that we have to understand your CAD design. And you know you have to have those skills to be able to translate that 3D object, to generate that 3D code. And you can print almost any geometry you envision and quite a few that you can't envision, quite a few that, that you have to actually generate through artificial intelligence or generative design, all of these kinds of things, because there's no way your head would come up with this, the kind of structure you can ask a generative design software to produce. So that is the real challenge is trying to say, here, this is what you can do with this. And they don't even know how to get from A to B. So really being an evangelist for the the software is because otherwise it just ends up being a solution in search of a problem. Because you talk to a regular manufacturer and th- their problem nine times out of 10 is going to be, I can't get enough people to do that traditional process. And so then it's a matter of, okay, how can we reshuffle this? How can we move it around such that we take the, we upskill the people. We put the people in the places where they're going to provide the most benefit. The younger generations are much more computer savvy. They take to this much quicker. They take to the 3D design much quicker. And, you know, I've experienced this with talking to manufacturers like old machine shop guys that are all of a sudden they hired a 20 something year old guy to do their programming with Mastercam or something. And he's 3D printing jigs at his house for them to use. And they're like, oh, and I'm like, go buy a 3D printer because, you know, the amount of money that you can spend versus what you're going to pay him, you're going to do much better. And he's going to shorten the turnaround time. You're going to do more of these fixtures and it's going to enhance your business. I see 3D printing as a enhancing factor for a great Many different existing processes—a stopgap until we get closer to the Star Trek replicator. We get closer to something that's—we just give it data and it spits out a complete part. Because, you know, those systems don't yet exist. They're they're close, but with some of the laser metal melting and so on, you can generate some really great things. But you know, it's—it's a stopgap.
0: So that's actually really great. Could you talk, in Pavan, let's start with you about. When we invest in additive manufacturing, um, what we find is it's sometimes tough for many companies. Maybe uh, the purchasing is difficult, and we find that some of these companies will piecemeal their technologies together to integrate something versus overhauling their whole production process at once. So if someone has taken the leap into additive and they're ready to add even more Industry 4.0, are there any technologies that you found to be very complementary to additive?
2: So- The one thing that is really attractive about additive is the low barrier to entry, the ability to, if you really wanted to just play around, not produce something, buy the $200 printer and just just play around with it and feel comfortable with the technology because the cool thing is the same software that essentially drives that little printer can actually be scaled up and it's the same set of skills, so to speak. So it's this mindset shift that you need to have first. One of the things we like to, talk about at Automation is this notion and Project Diamond is this notion that we believe the world at some point will be additive first and traditional second. And what I mean by that is today, the world is kind of where you said it was, Ingrid, which is I'm going to do this subtractively. I'm going to do this conformatively. And if for some reason it's just too much of a pain and the volumes work out and if the stars align, I'm going to look at additive. And we see that there are companies that are taking a completely flipped view of that picture. They're basically saying, no, the manufacturing of the future, because the advantages, all the benefits that additive brings to the table, we're going to be an additive first company. Case in point, Relativity Space, they are basically additively producing a rocket. And they've demonstrated this past summer that they can actually send a rocket in space that can withstand what they call Max-Q. It's an integrity test for the hull that they built. We have Zinger Automobiles. They produced an additive vehicle that beat McLaren Senna at one of these races. So these are the examples of companies that have essentially changed their culture from traditional to an additive first culture. So your question is actually a very loaded question because it includes a lot of different transformations that need to happen. One is mindset. The other is culture, and understanding how to kind of rethink your manufacturing. And then in terms of technical competencies, and I would love to hear Matt's response to this because I think he lives this every day. Today, when we design, we don't design for additive manufacturing. We design for traditional manufacturing and manufacturability. When we start designing for additive manufacturing, it changes the whole idea. The product doesn't become constrained by what traditional engineers look at as constraints for additive manufacturing. I'll give you an example. This was actually an anecdote. I wasn't at the event, but I heard about this from from another person who was at the event. Kevin Zinger, who is the CEO of Zinger Automobiles, was asked at an industry event, "You know, so you've produced this car, you're 3D printing metal, what about fit and finish, and what about post-processing? And he looked and he said, what about post-processing? We design our components so we don't need post-processing. By the time you get what's produced, the subsystem just needs to be fastened to another subsystem. And so those are some of those changes that need to be made. So specifically, and again, I'm gonna ask Matt to expound because I'm sure he's much closer to the technology, but one of the things we see is you need to understand that the design for additive manufacturing discipline, but you also need to start incorporating generative design into your design process. And so AI plus 3D printing is where we see the future is going to be. And then, of course, you need to have a solid suite of digital simulation and qualification processes that support your engineering so that you can have a comprehensive view. And that could mean materials, virtualization, that could mean design simulation and things like that so those are the pieces that you need to be putting together so that you become an additive first company and the most important thing is not to try to jump there but try to make that steady progress till one day you see that your workflows are now additive you're now a digital company so to
3: build on that you're you're absolutely right with the mindset kind of thing i'd go, like to go a little further with it is that the the mindset it needs to bore right down to the product level itself. So we have to think about what are the strengths of 3D printing? We have a lot of these strengths, but we want to think about the strengths in current term beyond this, because some of the technologies you're talking about are, you know, just on the horizon generative design is we're just scratching the surface. Um, and, And I like to put these things in that category that I call a solution in search of a problem, because in, In today's world, subtractive or conformal manufacturing works great for all the products around us. However, it's finding those niches that 3D printing moves into to support it as it grows so that when it does reach that level that it's going to replace uh, these things and it starts to supplant them because... At some point, it will be more efficient to produce things additively than subtractively. Just thinking about it in raw terms, additive versus subtractive. We make it exactly the size we want, the exact shape we want, exactly for the purpose we want, and that makes up for what time it might take to do that. So in changing that mindset, we look in those areas. And the biggest one that jumps out is customization and aftermarket products. If you survey around the 3D printing space, you're going to find all kinds of accessory manufacturing and custom manufacturing. And I've seen this in a couple areas where where I surveyed around. I've seen a lot of aftermarket dust collection products in woodworking space. So again, we're talking mass consumer market. We're talking about, you know, how many middle-class homes have saws and things like that in their garage. These people are making small to medium-sized businesses producing custom products and selling them online through a complete other digital economy. We're also seeing it in toys and hobbies and all of these other spaces. The traditional hobby market, if you're into tabletop gaming, again, I just look at all these spaces, but in that space, these models have absolutely just revolutionized the amount of products that are available on the market and the customization level of those products. So again, we're talking about exploiting the strengths of 3D printing to prop it up until we get to the stage, until the technology becomes more mature and we can offset its negatives.
0: Interesting. And Tom, can you talk a little about what are you seeing trend-wise in additive? Are there any sectors or even companies that are doing novel or unexpected things with this technology that could catch on or become even best practice? Um, you know, Matt just hit on a little with the gaming, but are there other things that you're seeing?
1: Well, a couple of things. I mean, the, the one thing that I try to talk about when I'm out there is how fast additive is moving in relation to how the general manufacturing community perceives it to be moving. Most of the community still perceives it to be fringe cases and things that are going to come eventually. And yet we see time and time again, where there are these transformative projects that are going that if they work They actually fundamentally change the industry that you're in. I'll give you a great example. I was talking with one of the largest injection molder CEOs in the world. This was back before COVID in 2019. And I said, uh, do you ever worry that 3D printing could actually encroach on your business? And he about read me the riot act about how little I understood injection molding and the volumes they work in Tom, Oh my God, the volumes and the cost, the little bitty cost that goes along with that. Fast forward to about six months ago and I ran into him and I said, what are you working on? He's like, Oh my God, we're all in an additive. He said, you know, HP has these machines where we can actually do the equivalent of ejection molding at the same cost without the tooling. This is absolutely transformative. And I think what took you so long, right? Because now he's behind the curve. He's not ahead of the curve. He's trying to keep up with the competition and he lost all that time for no other reason than arrogance, right? He was unwilling to even look at what was possible because all he could see through his blinders was what he knew every day when he woke up and went to work and saw his plant and said, what do I do within this box? And how does HP come in and say, no, 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 no. You don't change my business model. What I want you to do is just fix this inefficiency over here But for God's sakes, don't change my business model, because that means I got to go be a champion to my board. And the last thing I want to do is put my neck out, right? Until he was forced to do so. He had no choice because the 3D printing community said, we're not waiting for you to change your culture and catch up to us. And you see it in relativity space. If relativity space is successful in putting this rocket into space, their cost structure is so dramatically different. Every company in aerospace that's in the rocket business has to then go into additive full-time otherwise they will get destroyed by cost right so these are the kinds of things where we have to really pay attention to or say look if I'm in the rocket business or I'm a cog in the in the chain of the rocket business I sure as hell better be paying attention to relativity space because if they actually make it work which Pavin said you know they they made it past max q they couldn't get the rocket into orbit because their second engine didn't fire didn't have anything to do with the integrity of the 3d printed rocket it had to do with the engineering of the second stage when they do that they're about one-sixth the cost of boeing and lockheed and all these and, and even spacex even with the reusable rocket it's just fantastically orders of magnitude different these are the kinds of long tail risk that are right in front of us that we choose to not pay attention to. And so I would say, if you are a manufacturer, I don't care if you adopt 3D printing. All I want you is to tell me why you're not. Because that if that proves to me that you thought about it. You actually understood what's happening.
0: Pavan, what do you think about all that? I mean, what are your thoughts on some trends or things that you think companies are doing that are maybe unexpected or novel?
2: I will just jump back on relativity space because... There's the positive that Tom just mentioned, which is the lowering of the cost and things like that. But then there's also the de-risking because what they're able to do is every single rocket learns from the previous rocket and they can iterate their design at absolutely zero tooling cost. And that actually reduces risk because tooling is always a risk reward question. So the engineers have to fight for capital if they make a supposition that says, hey, you know what, I need this tooling to be different because X, Y, Z, the CFO comes back and says, well, prove to me why this tooling is less risky than the other one. And that is that's an argument that happens. But if I iterate in my 3D design and I can actually demonstrate using virtual testing and virtual simulation before I even manifest it in physical Now I have de-risked this as an example. I'll give you another innovation since you asked about innovation. We met a manufacturer, this is a small company. They're actually additive only, that's all they do. And they're in actually the, the Western part of Michigan, they're in the Grand Rapids area. And he said that March, 2020, he thought he was gonna go out of business because everything was just shutting down. But he said, April, 2020, his phone rang off the hook because no one was able to find supply coming out of China. And his additive lines were just running 24-7. So he started kind of creating relationships with companies that were traditional mold companies and things like that, and figured out a way, gave them a path forward. So they was, it was like a bridge technology. He was 3D printing for the mold that they could then produce. What was interesting is one of the companies that was a customer came to him and said, you know what, we have a different idea, but we don't know if this is gonna work. Can you 3D print it before we make the mold for it? Because the mold is 200 grand in CapEx. And if I don't know if this product is going to succeed, I don't want to spend the 200 grand. And so here what he did was he said, yeah, sure, I'll 3D print the few thousand products that you need before you decide whether you need to produce it using traditional technology. And so there's an example of how 3D printing de-risked a CapEx for this company. A third example, this is our own Project Diamond. If you remember, the the, the justification of Project Diamond was we were going to give 3D printers to individual manufacturers in Oakland County, and then Macomb County also came with 50 printers with the understanding, very simple concept, use this 3D printer, learn how to use it, produce parts, make money, what have you. If called upon, we'll ask you to print some PPE, personal protective equipment. For the pandemic effort. So this is how we kind of justified the use of CARES money. Well, the good thing was we never had to print PPE for the pandemic effort. But in 2022, after Russia invaded Ukraine, we got a request for tourniquet clips from Ukraine. And the 3D designs were available, but the tooling, the injection molds, they, didn't, they weren't going to be ready for another six weeks. Our network was mobilized. Six months. Six months, maybe. Yeah, yeah our network was months. mobilized, and we sent three thousand plus tourniquet clips using the emergency spool that we had allocated for Project Diamond use, because Oakland County and Macomb County authorized their use. Those are the types of innovations that that we're actually seeing, and and all of that is zero inventory. It's it's this is this um, notion of flexible capital. This is these are the things that. Traditional manufacturing it finds it very difficult to wrap their heads around. The lead sales engineer for Stratasys was saying their CMO was talking about one of their customers who bought some machines. And uh, the CMO said, hey, what did they buy the machines for? And he said, for everything. They, didn't, they were not, not <laughs> special purpose 3D printers. You print whatever you want on it. This opportunity creates all kinds of innovation that, that we can't even imagine. And sometimes you just have to unleash it at the factory floor.
0: We're all really excited about additive and a lot of these Industry 4.0 technologies, but we also have to be realistic. There've gotta be some potential drawbacks of additive that you're seeing in the field. Can you talk about what they are and what are people doing to mitigate those? Tom, any ideas? Well, yeah, obviously cost and speed.
1: (laughs) We still haven't gotten over the hump that says this is a viable threat to all manufacturing everywhere all the time, right? And that's because manufacturing really has been leaned out. People understand the behavior of all of the parts that they're making today. They understand all the metallurgy around certain stock steel that they're working with when they're putting it on a CNC machine. There's so many processes that exist in the world that are dependent. Think of automotive PPAP. You know, it's Ppapping the machine. I, I, I don't even know what to do if you came along and said I could print it additively. So there are lots of downside, but the downside is tied to the cultural inertia that exists in the world and how we sort of move people along. Because if we can begin to tip that cultural inertia in America, we can we can generate great competitive advantage on the global stage against high-volume mass-market manufacturing uh, uh, economies around the world. I won't name names, but if we can go down this path of additive making right at the point of sale and innovating continuously on that sale, um, that that is a huge competitive advantage.
2: This is exactly the point. So it's the cultural inertia and and the systems and the workflows that have been built in traditional manufacturing that are not necessarily conducive to additive. I kind of see this as we're at the turn of the century. We've got essentially an industry that has horses and carriages, and we've built a transportation system around around horse and carriage. And then here comes a bunch of crazies with this gas engine and vehicles and things like that. And some of the things that you hear are, well, my horse can go over, you know, all kinds of terrain. So in some ways, additive, I see additive as as it's a Ferrari, but it doesn't have the highway system, uh, you know, for it to stretch its legs, so to speak. So we have seen uh, very specifically that there are a couple of things that need to happen, and they need to happen systematically. They need to happen at the industry level, at the ecosystem level, not any one particular OEM. uh, One thing Matt uh, touched upon earlier we need to have a mechanism that basically we can have a formula or a smart product recipe that is locked that I can send to any printer that is have, has that same configuration, same material, and the smart product recipe needs to know if that printer, if that particular print was in compliance. It's this notion of repeatability. It's this notion of design once, Print anywhere. The other innovation that we need, and by the way, all of these are possible, but they're hard problems and we will solve them. We just need some time, is what we're calling about that the print file needs to be a digital twin of the physical component. What I mean by that is if I have a physical component that is represented by a print file that I can send to any printer, when I print a physical component from that particular print file, and I test it and qualify that physical component, not only am I qualifying that one print, but I'm qualifying the smart product recipe. And that smart product recipe now becomes the digital twin. I can send that anywhere in the world, and it knows based on the printer configuration, the material, the process, its environment, whether a print printed from that smart product recipe was in compliance or not. That's a framework, that's, a, that's what we call one of our four frameworks that needs to be developed. The other thing that needs to be developed is, as, as we talked about this earlier, the mindset of shifting from process to design. Today, I like to say that our manufacturers are like session musicians. They play a piece of music, they get compensated for it, but they don't get their name on the record. And so they don't get the residual royalties of the work that they're actually producing. We need to start thinking in terms of publishers that they're basically owning the IP that they're actually producing. And so that becomes the intangible. But to do that, we need a digital rights management framework where we can have very fast transfer of IP. The example that we like to use is in the music industry, if you want to essentially put your music out and get compensated for it, you have to use a platform like Spotify. But Spotify decides how much do you get per listen, per stream. We need a universal mechanism where if I'm the manufacturer and I own a design, I set the price of how much that print is going to cost. That's a digital rights management framework. Again, that has to be at the ecosystem level, and it can't be done by any one particular tech company. And then the other thing we also need is a mechanism to identify owners, what we call the global ID, So this is another piece and these four frameworks together, when we stitch them all together, this becomes the highway system for additive to truly reach its potential because manufacturers can rest assured that their designs can be monetized, their designs can't be stolen. They can be reverse engineered. Those are important things. I mean, of course, you print the physical part, someone can knock it off, but they can knock it off with today's technology also. But it's the geometry, I don't want anybody to get the 3D file and reverse engineer and just print it on their own. My print file is my IP that I can monetize. When we get there, or we will, that's when additive will be unleashed and available and, and truly democratized. Anybody that the, the cost of becoming a manufacturer is just going to be your ability to innovate and think about the human solution that you have in mind. All these other things will become less and less important. The capital becomes less important. Your access to space becomes less important. It's all about the design and the, the problem that it solves. So there are some some headwinds, there are some issues, but that's because when we look at additive today, even the OEMs think in terms of the hardware and the pro in the material and so on. And we need an entire software framework that stitches it all together.
0: It's fascinating. So we have come a long ways, but we still have a ways to go. Matt, you know, as I sit here and I listen to Pav and to Tom, and if I'm a listener out there hearing this podcast. You see a lot of CEOs, business owners come in. So put yourself in the shoes of the CEO or the business owner you're working with of a small or mid-sized manufacturer in Michigan. And this person is just learning about Industry 4.0. Could you give your advice on what actions would you take today to prepare for the future?
3: So if you're just learning about Industry 4.0, you know, l- look at what area of it you think is gonna benefit you the most. And I I know that's a challenge when you're just learning about it. So obviously is educate yourself first. Look at your resources, what resource you have that can educate you on this. And that's one thing I do see from a lot of CEOs. They hear this Industry 4.0 thing and they pretty much get sold on it pretty quick. Like, hey, this can benefit me. So then focus on a certain area of Industry 4.0 that's gonna benefit your business the most. Whether that's integration, And everything that goes along with it, as in full digital twin, as in your manufacturing process from start to finish, is documented and documented digitally. Um, That's, for some manufacturers, that's ideal because it reduces the amount of non-value-added labor massively. Other manufacturers, it is as simple as go buy a cheap 3D printer and start experimenting with it, start finding applications for it to, again, grow into Industry 4.0. Because the whole point of this is growing into it. None of these manufacturers that we deal with at the MMTC level are the kind that can afford to just say, hey, we're gonna do Industry 4.0. That's totally not in their budget at all. So finding the area of Industry 4.0 that's going to benefit you the most. That might be robotics. It could be you're a, you're a machine shop. And guess what? Uh, Cobot, which costs a fraction of what the machine you have it on, is depending on that machine. And so you can run, even if you're only running an extra four hours. You talk to them, they they can't get labor. Well, spend your labor appropriately during the day to set it up to set that robot up so it can run an extra 4 hours. You can say, "Oh, it's not worth it cuz I only run 30 parts." But when each part takes 5 minutes, that's extra hours you wouldn't get otherwise and it's extra hours you don't have to pay overtime for. The the robot doesn't care. So just cuz it's 30 parts and just cuz it seems so dumb that the robot's going to pick it up off the table and put it in the machine, that's time you wouldn't have otherwise. And that's how that robot pays for itself. And, you know, I think I laid out digital twin pretty well, is that it's all the documentation that you would otherwise have to do. So if you're in a heavily regulated industry, aerospace, thinking about how can I automate my inspection sheets? How can I automate that? So I don't have somebody writing data down, you know, making measurements by hand, reading it off the scale and writing that down. When they can make the measurement, hit a button, the data is recorded, logged into the form, and then the form turns red or green based on that data. That's really 1990s technology. We have to adapt to the times. There's other technologies that come on line that have enabled that. Sure, we could do it with a cord in 1990, but now we've got Bluetooth. Now we can put a, a cheap Bluetooth sensor on every uh, variable gauge that we're gonna use in that quality lab. Boom, cheap Bluetooth sensor, $20 a piece. And then it's, it's recording that data with a push of a button so there's no transcription errors. And again, it's instantly logged. And it, we're getting seconds back on every measurement. We're talking about an aerospace component that that would have a hundred measurements at minimum. You know, those seconds add up very quickly. So that's that's really how I approach being an evangelist for Industry 4.0 is start small because you're a small manufacturer. You can't handle it all at once. You don't have people to throw at this to say, you know, I'm CEO of this of this large company. I can just say, I'm going to put a team together to work on Industry 4.0 because I can afford to do that. And the thing is, is it pays at all levels. It's just finding that application that suits your business and, you know, working with the support groups that exist for it. I know that's what Automation Alley does. That's what we at MMTC do. Um, So that's what I would encourage any manufacturer to do in order to get on this industry 4.0 train and ride it into the future.
0: Fantastic. Tom, a couple more seconds. Do you have any advice before we start to end our session today?
1: Yeah. No, I I would just add very quickly, I I obviously agree 100% with what Matt is saying. I've always agreed with what Pavan is saying. The one thing, one piece of advice I would offer if I'm the CEO, if you're going to go down the path of additive, buy a production capable printer. Don't buy a cheap tchotchke maker to, to see if you can make plastic things. Because the best way that you teach a CEO that this is valuable is you show them how they make money with it. And buy a printer that you can make a tool. You can make a jig. You can make a fixture. You can make a saleable part. Because as you go down this path, you're like, wow, we made a derivation. You know, One of our Project Diamond members, they make a part traditionally. They reverse engineered it so they could design it additively. And then they started creating additive SKUs that were derivations of the main part. So they had a volume part. And then when customers wanted the derivation, They would just print it and sell it to them, that part. And what happened was the guy told us he's up to 12 SKUs, all profitable. His machine can make one SKU because of the way the machines work. Now he's unrestricted and he's got 11 more products he's selling out in the market, all a little different, perform a slightly different little function. And he's making a boatload of money because of that and it's all because of additive he still got his line he's still making his volume business but now he's able to do when customers say well could you do it this way he says you bet i can and here's what it's it's going to be in this material not in this oh yeah we can live with that and that's that's the transformative nature of just going down this path of additive
0: gentlemen great discussion today i want to thank you for your time Um, thank you for sharing your experiences about additive manufacturing and your thoughts about additives potential across our industry Michigan's investing heavily in its manufacturing industry and this podcast will explore the trends and topics that manufacturing professionals need to know to get ahead. So join us in April for a conversation about manufacturing opportunities with the federal government from defense to healthcare. And for the latest podcasts, live streams, and events, follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to talking to you next time. Bye-bye.